0: The first four verses of chapter 16, and then we want to pray together. And then uh, I'm going to tell you a couple of things that you need to know as we move forward today. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Let's pray together. Lord, today we're we're gonna begin talking about our giving. Since uh, the COVID of 2020, Many churches like ours have not passed offering plates. We have placed boxes where people can give along the walls as they come in or they go out. or we've made it possible for and easier for those who want to give to be able to do so electronically online. But Lord, we never want to forget the centrality and the significance of the worship of giving. And I pray, Lord, today as we begin talking about this matter for this week and next week, I pray, Lord, that you'll open our hearts to understand that a part of worship is not just how we give our time or how we give our talents, but it's how we give our treasures out of our resources. And I pray, Lord, God, that you'll challenge us in this respect today. In your name I pray. Amen. I'm thankful that we live in a place where we get to see all four of the seasons of the year, right? Uh, Winter and summer, spring and fall, and we get to experience a little bit of of all of that. Of those four seasons, the one that I most uh, dread when it comes is winter. Uh, Winter because it's extremely cold, Uh, it gets extremely cold, and I don't like to be cold. I remember when I first moved here 40, 41 years ago, I learned what snowbirds were. I'm not talking about the kind that fly in the air. I learned what snowbirds were, and I couldn't figure it out. Why do they leave at the beginning of winter, go to Florida, to the deep south, and then come back at the end of the winter, right at the beginning of spring or in the middle of spring? And it just didn't make sense to me. Why do you want to do that every single year? But I can tell you at 66 years of age, if I could do that, I'd do that. I don't like, I don't like to shiver. I don't like to be cold. I don't, I don't enjoy that. You can wrap up as much as you want to wrap up, but I'd much rather be warm than I had to be cold. The other part of the winter that's difficult for me, probably difficult for you, is that seasonal disorder kind of thing that goes on. You know, you get those long stretches of days that are cold, so you're not out as much as you'd like to be out. And then on top of that, the clouds are always there. You go out, and even on a sunny day, it doesn't look much like a sunny day because the clouds are obviously covering the sun, keeping the sun from reaching us, the rays of the sun from reaching us fully as we would like for them to. And the, the result is that those days go on for several days in a row, and the result is we start getting depressed and sort of getting discouraged, right? Are, are any of you like that, or am I the only one? And they tell me that you can sit in front of these lights, you can get these particular kinds of lights, and it sort of mimics the sunlight. Well, let me just tell you, they don't work. <laughs> there is nothing that can replace the beautiful sunshine that we have like we have today when you walk out into it and the vitamin d that comes from it and so you know you, you get to the end of winter and you're longing for spring to come you're, you're waiting for the clouds to dissipate you're, you're looking forward to the sun beginning to shine and feeling the warmth on your skin and the colors the beautiful colors beginning to shine, to to come to life again and there's an excitement about that right okay here's the the thing if you like winter there's a place to repent right down here at the front (laughs) I use that as an analogy much of the body of 1 Corinthians has been like the winter the cloud cover the cold the gray days and you open the Bible and you start reading in those passages and you hear correction after correction after correction about things that were going on in Corinth and in the church at Corinth. And it just just doesn't make you feel good sometimes when you read about some of the things that they were dealing with. But when you come to chapter 16, spring is on the horizon. And the clouds begin to abate. And the sun begins to shine again and you begin to feel a little bit of the warmth that you've missed throughout the body of this letter for the most part. And isn't it interesting, at least it is to me, that when the sun begins to shine again and the colors begin to burst again in the beauty of the flowers around, that the very first thing that he talks about is giving. It's giving. You could have thought of a thousand other subjects that might have been the subject that he would want to address on this particular occasion coming out from the winter and entering into the springtime of this letter. But what he chooses to talk about, and I say chooses, the Spirit of God guided him to this, what he chooses to talk about is the matter of giving. And specifically, he's talking about giving to the poor saints that live in Jerusalem. He's talking to Gentile Christians he's telling them to gather a collection, as are the Galatian churches, as are the Macedonian churches, these churches in Achaia, which is where Corinth is. These churches are to be gathering an offering that's going to be taken. He actually says, I'd like to go with them to take the offering. If I can't, we're going to have several people to go to make sure that everything we do is a matter of good stewardship. It can be no questions about what we're doing and I'd like to be able to go and take that offering to these poor saints that are in that that are in Jerusalem. Now, why are there poor saints in Jerusalem? Well, there's several reasons why. Most notably amongst them is because they are believers. And the result of being a believer is that they are being persecuted. And that brings them into a position sometimes where they can't get the work they want or they can't sell the things they want to sell. And the result is they don't have the resources to be able to take care of themselves. And of course, there's other reasons as well. But these are believers. And one of the greatest things Paul is looking at doing here, saying to these Gentile believers to collect this offering and send it to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem is to show a unity you gentiles recognize that the gospel came through christ and christ came through the jewish people and when you're giving to them and showing your love to them and the way you give to them you're expressing your thanks to them but you're also drawing yourselves into a unity you're showing a unified front that this is not jew or gentile these are the children of god both jew and gentile and so paul writes them coming out of the winter of this letter, and into the spring when the sun begins to shine again, and the very first thing he talks about is this collection. He uses that word twice. This collection that's being made. Now, this is not their regular giving. This is not what they gave to support those who were the teachers of the church. This was a specific collection that was being given to the poor, the poor saints who who were in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But from this giving and from this collection, we learn some principles about giving in general. And actually, there are seven words. You say, surely you're not going to get to all seven. I'm only going to get to one word today. But I'm going to give you all seven of these words to begin with because all of these words come out of these four verses. Most of them come out of verse two. But they are principles that would be true for whatever giving we are doing, specifically the giving that we do to a local church. They are true for all of us, not just when there's a special collection being made, but when there's the weekly collection being made. And those principles are principles that should guide us in in our giving. Now, if you're here and you're saying, every time I go to church, they preach on giving, you need to come to church more frequently Because it has been since before 2020 that I last preached on giving. But you need to learn, all of us need to learn these principles. So I'm going to give you these seven words. One of them we're going to look at today because I want to spend more time on it because as I was studying it, God just—he was just working my heart over about this particular one. But but, but I want to give you these seven words because I know some of you get really stressed out when you have blank lines and an outline and you don't have a word on that blank line. And and I don't want you to go home stressed today because I want you to come back to give. (laughs) The first word we're talking about here, our giving should be, the first word is enthusiastically. Enthusiastically. That's what we're going to talk today for most of our time. Secondly, our giving should be done systematically. On the first day of the week, we'll talk about that systematically. Thirdly, our giving should be done individually. Each one of you should be done individually. Our giving should be done proportionately as he's prospered you. It should be done proportionately. Our giving should be done quietly, lay by him in store. It should be done quietly. It should be done sacrificially. That's not specifically in verse 2, but I'm going to show it to you when we get to it. And then finally, it should be done compassionately because you recognize the mission and the importance of that mission. And that mission is not just feeding the poor. The mission is bringing the gospel to those who desperately need Jesus. But today we're just looking at the first one. Our giving should be done enthusiastically. Go back to the text with me for just a moment. Let me point out uh, something to you that I want you to see. You notice as he opens verse 1, he comes out of the winter time of all of these things that he's been talking about that are problems in the church at, at uh, Corinth. And he he comes into the beginning of the spring, and the sun is shining again, and the flowers are beginning to grow. And the first thing he talks about is giving. You notice he begins that section, verse 1, by saying, now concerning. Now, if you've been with us in this study, you know that that's an important phrase. Keep your place there, but turn back with me to chapter 7 for a moment. Uh, Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. And you'll see what I'm about to show you, and you'll understand what I'm telling you. In chapter 7, verse 1, he begins by saying, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. In that same chapter, in verse 25, you see he says, now concerning virgins. If you turn over to chapter 8, in verse 1, you see what he says at the beginning. Now concerning things offered to idols. Or if you go over to chapter 12, there's a lengthy section between Uh, 8 and 12. But in chapter 12, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And then when you get to chapter 16, he begins this section about offerings, about a collection. He says, now concerning. And then if you look at verse 12 of chapter 16, you see it again, now concerning our brother Apollos. Do you remember why he points these things out to us? It is because the Corinthians have written to him a letter, a dear Paul letter, And in that letter, they have told him about some things that are in the church that need to be dealt with, some things that need to be addressed and want to know what God's will would be in those matters. And so Paul writes back, and so he says, now concerning this issue, let me tell you what God wants you to do. Now concerning this one, let me explain to you. Now concerning that one, and so he's going through here and he's answering these questions, and one of them has to do with an offering. Now concerning the collection for the saints, Paul says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now, the first word that comes out of verse 2 that I I want you to see, and really it doesn't come out of verse 2, it comes out of verse 58 of chapter 15, and that is, our giving should be done enthusiastically. In other words, how is this giving supposed to take place? First day of the week, each one of you lay by himself as he prospers this collection so that when he comes, there doesn't have to be a collection. How is all of that supposed to be done? In what spirit is the giving supposed to take place? It's the spirit that ought to take place when any of us give. And that's the spirit of enthusiasm. That's the spirit enthusiastically, or if you want to use... Uh, other words to describe it. We're eager to do this. We're passionate about this matter. It's to be done not because somebody's twisted your arm and somebody has laid this necessity on you, but it's because you enjoy being a part, because you love being a part of what God is doing around the world. Keep your place here in chapter 16 and just turn a few pages over to 2 Corinthians. And look back at chapters 8 and 9 for a moment, specifically chapter 9. He, he, he will address this again. Chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians was written in the middle uh, uh, 50s, 50s A.D., about 55 A.D. Uh, 2 Corinthians wasn't written long after that. Not a long time after that. But, but notice what he says in verse 5 of chapter 9. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your, here it comes, this is the enthusiasm, generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a, here it is again, this this enthusiastically, this passionately, a a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. He goes on, verse 6, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully. There's that enthusiastically. He sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Now notice the words. Not grudgingly. Don't say, i got to do this, and I don't really want to do this, but I have to do this grudgingly not grudgingly or of necessity as if somebody is standing over you and twisting your arm and saying you have to do this i'm going to make you do this not grudgingly not of necessity for god god what kind of a what kind of a giver does god love god loves a cheerful giver there's your enthusiastically there's your passionately That's their enthusiasm and your passion when it comes to the matter of giving. Now, if you come back to chapter 16 and look at the end of chapter uh, chapter 15 and verse 58, where do we get this enthusiastic giving? Well, he begins in verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always, and here comes the word, abounding in the work of the Lord. Let me ask you, is giving a part of the work of the Lord? It's a part of not only the work of the Lord, it's a part of the worship of the Lord. And how are we supposed to do the work of the Lord and the worship of the Lord? We're to do it in an abounding fashion. That is to exist, uh, to have something that exists in full quantity to exceed or to excel or to overflow. So they coming right out of chapter 15 where he talks about the resurrection of Jesus and how that's going to lead to the resurrection of all believers in Jesus Christ one day. He comes right into the springtime of this passage and says, okay now, I want you to take care of this collection, and I want it to be abounding. I want it to be filled with passion. I want it to be done enthusiastically. I don't want to have to stand over you and twist your arm. I don't want you to do it grudgingly. Oh, my goodness, i got to give again. Does he ever talk about anything other than giving? I want you to do it cheerfully. The, The word gives us our word hilarious, but he's not talking about comedy here. He he wants our hearts to be overflowing with joy and overflowing with passion and overflowing with enthusiasm. Now, we used to pass the offering plates, just like every other church passes the offering plates until COVID came, and we did away with the offering plates. And when we passed the offering plates, you could see the enthusiasm or the grudging on people's faces sometimes. You know, it's like, like it was, you know, like, like it was something that was evil. In fact, I don't want to touch it. I've got to get rid of it as quick as possible. The reality is, friends, that when it comes to our giving to God, when it comes to giving to his church, when it comes to giving to his people, when it comes to giving to the advancing of the mission of the church, it ought to be something that is done in an abounding way. It ought to be something that's done with enthusiasm and with passion, but may I just tell you that too often what happens in our lives is we lose the passion and we lose the enthusiasm, and we're just going through the motions. It's one of the reasons I'm not exactly crazy about the way we receive offerings today, because I wanted it to be, and I like for it to be a part of our worship, for it to be something that we are doing in a service when we are giving to God in a way that it's an act of worship in the midst of the service. We're not going back to that, but I liked it for that purpose. It became a part of worship. It was actually a part of worship. Because if you're not careful, what happens is you put it on a line item, it gets subtracted from one account to the church account, or it gets placed Uh, on the app or online, and you're just giving, and you don't even think about it. You don't even consider it. And yet, what the scripture says is they come out of the winter of all these problems. And the very first things he talks about in the spring of this passage, he says, look, I'm talking to you about giving, and I want it to be an abounding, an abundance of giving. I want it to be the full measure. I want it to come from the depths of your heart. I want it to be cheerful. I want you to be excited about it, not just a withdrawal from your account i want it to be something that you get excited about and you're you're thrilled over i get to be a part through giving to what god is doing in the world i get to be a part of giving to people who are in need the believers in christ who are in need i get to be a part i'm enthusiastic and sometimes because we don't talk about giving as much as we used to talk about giving because we don't pass offering plates like we used to talk pass offering plates We, we forget that when the offering is given it's not just a withdrawal it's a worship of our hearts to god when we say to god we're coming to give to you enthusiastically and passionately because you've given so much to us remember um, when you were first dating and maybe engaged and you couldn't see enough of her, men? She couldn't see enough of you. You Remember those days? You would have crossed hell and high water to have gotten to her. You would have done anything to be in her presence You would have sat at the table across from her at a restaurant and you would have never known there was any other woman in the restaurant. You would have looked across the table into her eyes and the only person you could see was the person sitting across from you. And you didn't complain about how much the meal cost that she ordered. You were just glad that she was willing to be with you and that she was willing with the ring if you're engaged she was willing to be your wife and that she was going to walk down the aisle i mean you've looked in the mirror you know what you really look like and yet she saw in you something that you don't see when you look in the mirror and you would do anything for her if it meant walking across the puddle of water you'd take your coat off and you'd lay it across the puddle of water i mean when you left her house at night this is, uh, if, you're, if, this is uh, if this is post or this is when cell phones exist, it, when you left her house at night, you get on your phone and you get in the car and you talk with her all the way you get to the house until you go into the house and you spend another hour or two talking to each other in the house. Or if it's pre-cell phones like it was mine... You left her house, you drove the seven or eight miles through those country roads to your family house, you picked up that line that was connected to a wall with a dial on it like this, and you called her and you talked for a couple of hours. I mean, there was a passion to your relationship. Now, I understand that as you mature and you get older, passion is still there it may just look different but for too many people the passion and the enthusiasm has gone out of their relationship and they're just living together they share an address together they share a dinner table together they share the bills together but they have very little passion for each other and their marriage is existing but that's about all that's happening they're just existing in their relationship what a shame that is if that's the set state of your marriage ask god To light a new fire in your relationship of passion and enthusiasm for each other. Amen? Amen. I mean, men, you you ought to be willing to die for your wife. That's what Ephesians 5 says. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. What what, What did Christ do for the church? He was willing to die for his wife. It reminds me of a funny little story when Mary and I were newlyweds and we were living at the Bossa Nova Apartments. Yeah, we lived at the Bossa Nova Apartments. Yeah, we, we lived at the Bossa Nova Apartments. That was, you had to dance in order to be able to live there. And one night we came home very late. I don't remember what time it was, but it was late, 11 o'clock, 11.30. We were, both got out of the car, and suddenly we heard two dogs barking like they were angry running toward us. And so I did the masculine thing. I did the loving thing. I did what every husband that's a a passionate husband about his wife, I jumped back in the car. (laughs) Forgetting that the doors were locked on her side. (laughs) I didn't do that twice, by the way. (laughs) The passion, the passion. Let me ask you a question. Are you passionate about being here today? Are you passionate about the worship of God today? Are you passionate about the preaching of the Word of God today? Are you passionate about the people of God? Are you passionate about the, about the mission You see, where the passion goes out, where the enthusiasm goes out, where you're just going through the motions and going through the actions, you you might actually be giving. It might be a withdrawal from an account where you're simply paying a bill and you're taking care of responsibility. But the passion is gone from it. You're, You're not even listening to God, whether he might want you to do something else or something more. You're just doing what you have to do and you're checking off a box and you're feeling really good about yourself. But there isn't any passion to it. But Paul comes to the spring of this letter, coming out of the winter of what's gone before, he comes to the spring of this letter, and he says, the very first thing I want you to think about is giving this collection that you're going to take, and I want it to be abundant. I want it to come from the fullness of your heart. I want you to be excited about it. I want you to have, I want you to have a thrill when you participate. I want there to be a passion in what you're doing. Passion. Passion is what you see at a football game. People pay big, big dollars to get seats at a football game. They go hours in advance to tailgate parties. Doesn't matter what the weather is, cold, hot, raining, snowing. They'll wait at that tailgate party and they'll eat food. They'll have these expensive tickets to get in. They're all dressed up. Some of them go more than just dress up. They paint their faces. Some of them go without a shirt, and they paint their chests and their arms, and they look like their favorite team. And they're in the stands, and they're watching the game, and they're jumping up and down, and they're cheering every time something happens. And you can hear it. I've been to the games like you've been to the games. You can hear the rise and the fall of the people in the crowd as various things are happening on the the field. And there's always somebody or several, some, They're yelling at the referees. They didn't make the right call. Can't you see what what, what, what happened right there? Can't you see that? Are you blind? And you got other people. They're there for one reason. They're passionate about being there because it's a social event. Oh man, I'm going to get to see all my friends. We're going to get to talk together. And then when they come down or you go out to buy something, you're passionate. It's a $5 Coke, but you're passionate about it. And when the team makes a great player, there's a, there's a touchdown. It's, hey! Hey! Are your ears hurting yet? <laughs> and then when the game's over, all the traffic to get you there, where you had to park at a long distance to be able to walk to the stadium. Now you got to walk back to that car and you got to endure the same traffic. It's going to be a problem for you to be able to get back home. And when you get home, all you can, especially after a great game, all you can think about is talking about the game. Hey, we got a new quarterback in town. Or it's what I see a lot of adults and teenagers doing, going to concerts. Dressed like their favorite entertainer, whoever he or she may be. Thousands of people standing around the stadium, even thousands down on the infield And they're as close as they can get to this person that they want to hear or they want to see. And they're dancing and their arms are in the air and they got their phone. They got to get a picture. I got to get a picture with that entertainer in the background. They're dressed like them. They have various things to identify the fact that this is my favorite person. By the way, some of that, including with sports, borders on idolatry. It borders on idolatry. But they're cheering and they're excited. I mean, they'll endure whatever. I don't want to go to a place. You've been to a Bucky's? Have you been to a Bucky's? I mean, that's what the kind of thing is going on at the stadium. All these kids down here, all these adults down here, they're jumping up down they're bumping against each other. It's all uncomfortable. I mean, who wants to stand for a three-hour concert? All that enthusiasm. And then when they leave, all they can talk about, man, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you see how close I was? Did you see how close I was? Did you see? Did you see? I got, she's in my picture. He's in the picture background. You see that? I'm there. I'm there. That's passion. That's enthusiasm. So, So let me ask you a question. When it comes to your giving, when it comes to your serving, when it comes to your attending, When it comes to any aspect of your spiritual life, your Bible reading, when it comes to being in a life group, when it comes to being baptized, when it comes to sharing your faith, when it comes to anything, does any of that passion that you have in other things ever, is it ever seen in these things? I want you to look down at verse 8 for a moment. Where is Paul? Paul while he's writing this letter? I want you to look at it for a But I will tarry in, what city? Say it out loud with me. Ephesus. Ephesus. I'll tarry in Ephesus. Where's he writing this letter from? He's writing this letter from Ephesus. Do you know that Ephesus was an incredible church? Have you read the book of Ephesians? I mean, all of the incredible verses that are there, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he goes on. All of these incredible verses that are in Ephesians, this was a church that had passion. This was a church that had enthusiasm. This was a church that was filled with life and excited until you get to the end of the first century. Turn with me, if you will, back to the Revelation Oh, have I mentioned that you should purchase my book on Revelation? <laughs> so you'll understand chapter 2. And we're introduced at the end of the first century. We move from the middle of the first century. Forty or forty-five years later, we move to the end of the first century. And notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus right. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. So are they busy? Absolutely, they're busy. Your labor, are they working hard at it? Yeah, they're working hard at it. Your patience, they're enduring a lot of things. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. I mean, they're doctrinally sound. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. They ought to do that. Not everybody that says they're a preacher you ought to be listening to and have found them liars and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. I mean this sounds like a church at the end of the first century to which you want to belong. This is a busy, active full-service congregation. They got everything. The machinery is functioning. The wheels are turning. The gears are all, they're all oiled up. It's all moving like it's supposed to move. Then you get to verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Do you know how you know when you... have left your first love. When you've lost your enthusiasm and you've lost your passion, when your eagerness is gone, when your excitement is no longer there, you have left your first love. And by the way, their first love wasn't the mechanism of the church that kept it running, all the gears that had to mesh together to make it function in a smooth fashion. Their first love was a person and his name was Jesus. And they'd gotten busy in all the things that were going on, and they had everything worked out. They could test everybody as to whether they were genuine or not, but they had left Jesus in the process. They were no longer passionate about Jesus. They were no longer eager about him. They were no longer excited about Christ. They were no longer thrilled with the one who had saved them from their sins. They were going through the motions. They were doing all the right things. But it was just a Withdrawal from the account. Oh, look here! I've got our bank statement. We gave to the church. It was just a withdrawal. Oh, I, I gotta, I gotta make sure that I put that giving online. I gotta make sure that I, I do that so that it, it's repeated when it's supposed to be repeated, and it becomes something that's a matter of rote memory, a matter of just going through the motions. Rather than stopping to say, wait a minute God, one of the greatest ways that you give me a privilege of being part of a church and the work of God through a church is to be able to give to the work of that church and to realize that my giving to that church enables that church to continue to reach out, not just locally, but internationally. Lord, this is an incredible opportunity. This is an incredible blessing. I am so thankful, Lord. I don't want this to ever become just the machinery that I go through. I want this to be something that my heart is in all the time. And I'm not just asking God, do I have to do this, Lord, or can I only do this? But you're asking God, Lord, what do you want me to do and how much do you want me to do? Because God, I want to be able to give enthusiastically. I want to give enthusiastically. Look back in your Bible to Exodus. Exodus chapter 35 and 36. I want to show you passion when it comes to giving. Enthusiasm when it comes to giving. Excitement when it comes to giving. Paul is writing to these Christians. They've just come out of the winter of all these problems that Paul's been addressing. They're entering into that warmer spring and the flowers are beginning to bloom. And the first thing he reminds them about is their giving. And he gives them principles related to their giving that all of us ought to learn so that all of us learn to give in the way That Paul was teaching them to give. In the middle of the book of Exodus, you know the story that Moses has been to the top of the mountain, the mountain of God. He's met with God. God has given him the commandments, the Ten Commandments. God has given him the law that will govern his people. You remember, they were in Egypt in bondage. God set them free, brought them across the Red Sea, brought brought them through the Red Sea, brought them out here into the wilderness. Now they're waiting for God to tell them what to do next. And Moses goes up into the mountain, up into the cloud to meet with God. And he gets the law, the Ten Commandments and all of the law, and he gets the pattern or the plan, the architectural layout for the way the tabernacle, because God's going to be at the center of this people. Everywhere they stop, they're going to stop and put God at the center of the camp. Whenever God lifts, his presence lifts and moves, they're going to pick up their things and they're going to move with God. They're going to do what God says. They're excited about God. They're excited about this tabernacle that God has given them the pattern to build. But to build that tabernacle, they've got to have the resources to do that, right? By the way, God always provides the resources. You know, On the way out of Egypt, the Egyptians were just giving them anything and everything. Just go, just go. We want you out of here. We don't want any more of these plagues. Just take it, just take it. It's yours. Go on. And God was providing for them on this trip. But I want you to notice just some words that go through here. Chapter 35, verse 5. It says, take from among you an offering. They're going to build a tabernacle now. Take from among you an offering to the Lord, whoever is of a, here's the word, willing Circle that word, willing heart. You look over at verse 21, then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was, here it is, willing. And they brought the Lord's offering. Down to verse 22, they came, both men and women, as many as had a, what kind of a heart, church? A willing heart. You go down to verse 29, same chapter. The children of Israel brought a Willing, a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were... What's the word? They, do y'all see the word? Willing. They were willing. Look over at chapter 36. The middle of... Uh, at the end of verse 2, everyone whose heart was stirred. Verse 3, from Moses, all the offering. At the end of verse 3, they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Wow! Can you imagine? Just, just imagine uh, the coffee place down here when cars are lined up, waiting to get coffee, on both sides. There's a line of people, and they've brought their gifts every morning. And they said, we want to give to this. We want to give to this. We want to give to this. Hey, hurry up. Can you, can you hurry up? I, I want to give. I don't think they said that. doesn't say that they said that, but I'm dramatizing it, so stay with me. And here, I want to give to you. 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 Hey. Notice verse 4. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, And they spoke to Moses saying, here it comes, the people bring much more than enough. I don't know any church in America that can say that. The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment and they, Moses gives a commandment. Stop giving. Stop giving. That's enough. That's enough. Turn around. Go back. Take it back with you. And they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. So let me just say to you today, please don't give any more. We have all the money we need to do everything we want to do, and we'll tell you when we need you to give again. Have you ever heard a pastor say that? <laughs> you no, know, the opposite's usually true. And why would they have been given, look at verse 7, for the material they had, they had sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much? Why, why? Why would they have too much? I mean, because they were eager they were passionate they were excited that this was thrilling it didn't matter that the baseball game cost you 150 dollars per person to be able to get in and have a couple of hot dogs and a coke and maybe a bag of peanuts more like 200 it didn't matter that it cost what it cost i'm excited about this this is what i want to do this, this we want to give we want to be a part of this we are thrilled we're willing we're willing we're willing we're willing, we're willing. Giving today so often feels like come come Give me your arm. Are you going to give now? Are you going to give now? Paul says, he comes out of the winter of dealing with all of these problems, and he comes into the spring, and the sun is out, and the flowers are beginning to pop with color, and the very first thing he talks about is giving. And he says, when you give, I want you to do it enthusiastically. It's not just a withdrawal from your account. It comes from your heart. It's something you want to do. It's something you love to do. It's not something you, I've got 10%. Let me make sure, 10%. No, 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 no that, that would be 10.01%. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I've got just 10% or 5%. Or, I, I don't want to go over. That's not the way God intends for us to give. Are you all with me? God intends for us to give enthusiastically. God intends for us to give passionately. He doesn't intend for us just to go through the motions like the church at Ephesus had begun to do, where they had left their first love and they were no longer passionate about Jesus, they were just paying the bills. God intends for us to be so in love with Jesus and what Jesus has done for us that we understand the significance and the importance of what he's given us to do. And it is the great privilege and the great honor to be able to give to God, not as little as I can give to God, but to give to God as much as I can give to God. And to do it with a great old big smile on my face and say, what a privilege, what a privilege it is. Turn turn with me to 1 Chronicles, chapter 28. We move move almost 500 years later. David is now the king of Israel, the appointed, the anointed king of Israel. He wants to build God a permanent place in Jerusalem on the mount. But God wouldn't let him, right? Chapter 28, verse 2. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house for rest of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and has shed blood. And so you go on, you're, you learn the story. Who's going to build this house? It's going to be Solomon, his son. He's going to be the one who's going to build this house. But notice verse 11. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans. So what is David doing? David's putting together the plans. He's making sure that as much as he can possibly bring together, he can bring together before he dies and his son Solomon takes over and has to build the temple. Verse 12 says, and the plans for all that he had by the Spirit. All of this are the plans. All of these are the plans that God had. Well, look at chapter 29, verse 2. He says, Now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might. How had David prepared for the building of the temple? With all his might. Let me ask you a question Is that enthusiasm? Is that passion? Is that eagerness? Is that a thrill? I have done everything I humanly can do to prepare for the building of the temple so that as much as is possible is ready when my son Solomon is on the throne and ready to build the temple. And he starts building it four years into his reign. But you go on down through here. Notice verse 3. Moreover, because I have set my affection. I have set my affection on the house of my God. I have given to the house of my God. Notice the phrase. Over and above all that I have prepared. He he goes on in that same verse, my own special treasure. You know where he went? He went into his own treasure house and he took out of his own gold and his own metals, those precious metals, and he brought them for the preparation of the building of this house. Verse six, it wasn't just David. Then the leaders of the father's houses are going to do the same thing. At the end of verse six, they offered willingly. Verse nine, they offered willingly twice. And then David breaks out into a prayer in verse, verse 10 down to verse 15. Verse 16, notice, oh Lord our God, all this what? What is it? All this what? <laughs> Abundance. I mean, there's an enthusiasm, there's an excitement when you get to verse 17. Willingly is mentioned twice. And then what happens in verse 20? They see all that has been brought together for the building of this temple. And in the middle of the verse, it says, now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the King. I mean, everybody is enthusiastic and everybody's excited and everybody's thrilled and everybody's heart is in it. We're not having to twist anybody's arm. Nobody's having to be coerced. Nobody's having to be guilted into it. This is what God is doing in the world, and I want to be a part of it. And they just keep bringing, 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 bringing, because they want to be where God is at work. Shouldn't that be the way our giving is done? Beloved brothers, therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always, here's the word, abounding. Abounding in what? The work of the Lord. Is part of the work of the Lord our giving? Well, according to chapter 16, 1 to 4, it is. And we're supposed to be doing it enthusiastically. I want to finish with a story. So look over to Luke chapter 19. You say, Pastor, when are you going to get those other six words over the next six weeks? That's not true either. I may get all the others in one week if that's what God leads me to do. I want you to look at it. Verse 19, chapter 19, excuse me. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. You know whose story I'm about to tell you? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree the Savior for to see And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down here, for I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house today. And you didn't think I could sing. (laughs) Verse 2, now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Ooh, that's not good. He's a Jew collaborating with the Romans, and he's taking above and beyond the required tax to make himself rich. Verse three, and he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. I don't think it was just his short stature. I don't think those people around Jesus wanted to give him a chance to see, uh, give Zacchaeus a chance to see Jesus. We don't like you anyway, Zacchaeus. Why would we make a road for you, a path for you? Don't you wish it was? Don't don't you wish? In in the first century, they had those things that you used to have at a golf course, and you look in the mirror this way, it goes up, and you look in a mirror that way so you can see over everybody. Okay, so they don't use those anymore, I understand. I'm just dating myself. He can't see. Verse 4, so he runs ahead, he climbs up in a sycamore tree to, to see him, and as he was going to pass that way, and when Jesus came to the place, He looked up and he saw him and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Joyfully, there's a word. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, There's always complainers. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Now, now listen carefully. There's two words you want to get. You want to get. What, what's the first thing Zacchaeus did after he was saved? Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give. The very first thing Zacchaeus did. After he experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ, he gave. How can we be less than enthusiastic and less than passionate? Jesus in the upper room said that there's no greater love than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus was looking at those men who were his friends. He knew he was about to lay down his life. But Paul ups the ante in Romans chapter 5. He says, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, not friends, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How can our giving just be a checked check box? done my job, done my job. Oh, there's the withdrawal. It's done. Oh, I, I put it in the box. I put it in the box. How can it not be something that comes from the depths of our heart that says, you've saved me from my sins and given me eternal life And reserve for me a home with you forever and ever and ever. And you are now my father. This is the greatest privilege. You said the one thing in this world you were going to build is your church. And now I get the privilege and I get the honor and the joy and the enthusiastic, uh, passionate. Uh, desire to give to you, God, I don't want to give to you just what I got to give to you. I want to give to you as much as I can give to you. I don't want to be like the Ephesians that have left their first love. Who was their first love? Jesus. Jesus.